Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth. And we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9 is where we're going to be. We're kind of doing, I, I'm doing a crossover sort of a thing where we, we've been in a series in the book of Luke. Um, and we're still in that, but I also wanted to start the vision series uh, from the passage that we have in Luke. Uh, so Luke chapter 9, every fall we do what uh, we call our vision series, and it's a time to really go back to what is the vision of the church? What's the, what, what was this church founded on? What is Saints Hill designed to be? And we have 10 core values. If you don't know what those are, head out to the lobby afterwards. We have little um, like card packs with the 10 core values on each card and then a declaration on the back. I've also written a book with a chapter for each of the 10 core values. There's a QR code out there that'll just take you to the Amazon page. And uh, I'd really encourage you, get the book, read through it, especially if you're new to the church and you're wondering, what is this church all about? It's a little strange, or there's, there's, there's a lot of kind of lively people around here. Have I wandered into some kind of a cult? Uh, go ahead and grab the book. Maybe you have. Maybe you'll be like, yep, this is definitely a cult. Um, grab, grab the book, read through that. And typically what I do in the vision series is I pick one core value out of the 10. I pick one core value as a theme for the series. Uh, But I don't have one core value. I have several. In fact, I'll just say this from the very beginning. I have such, I have so much on my heart this morning that I'm almost, I'm normally not nervous to preach. I'm like kind of trembling with anticipation for what I believe that God wants to do for our church. I think that we, we've been a church for five years now, and I think the next five years are going to 10x what the first five years were. And if, if you were around for the first five years, that's a lot. So I, I, all week long, I literally rewrote this sermon like five different times, trying to put into words all that God was doing in my heart and all that I believe he's going to be doing in our church. So bear with me. Uh, there's a lot today, but I have stuff on the righteous. We're the righteousness of God, which is one of our core values. There's stuff in here on nothing is impossible. There's stuff in here on leaving a legacy for the next generation to inherit so that they start where we finish. Guys, there's so much that God intends to do. So Luke chapter nine, let's stand for the reading of the text. And uh, we're gonna begin in verse 37. says this, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Everybody say, They could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit. He healed the boy and gave him back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. 
While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and grab your seat. I have a question from this text. And really, last week set us up perfectly for this. Here's the question Is it possible to have authority but no power? Is it possible to have authority but no power? You know, imagine that you go to Fred Meyer's, you know, after a Sunday gathering or something to pick up a few groceries for the evening, and you really want to, you're going to have a barbecue, so you want a watermelon, and you go to the watermelon bin, and you kind of pick, how do you even pick a watermelon? They all just kind of look the same, and then you find one imperfection, you're like, nope, not that one, I'm going to the next one. So you find a watermelon, and you kind of thump it, right? And if it sounds hollow, then you're like, oh, it's probably good. So you buy the, you know, the watermelon, you bring it home. And you're very excited for, you know, watermelon. So you cut it open, and there's nothing inside. Imagine that it's just completely hollow inside. It was, you know, when you thumped it and it sounded hollow, it was, it was actually hollow. Just air. There's an integrity problem there, right? Because a watermelon on the outside promises that it has something on the inside. Does your life... And what you do and what you're able to do in this life match who you are. Is it possible to have authority in your identity, but to have no power? See, look at the broader context of this story. This is now the second time, and as we've been making our way through Luke and through chapter 9 specifically, this is the second time that the disciples are supposed to be able to do something, but they cannot. They're supposed to be able but they could not. And this is how chapter nine actually begins. Check it out. When Jesus Jesus had called the 12 together, here's what he gives them. He gave them power and authority to drive out some demons, all, all demons, and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So the disciples, what do they have? They have authority but they don't have any power. You know, I brought brought my son to your disciples to see if they could cast the demon out, and they could not. Something is true about them, they have authority, that isn't being experienced. The watermelon was opened, and there was nothing inside. Now, remember last week, how many of you were here last week? Just by a show of hands, you were at church last Sunday. 
great. Uh, Teresa, we had a guest speaker um, from uh, After the Rain uh, Counseling. Uh, it's a ministry out of um, Huntington Beach, California. And Teresa said, there's one reason why I'm here this morning, and it is to ready the bride. She said, the bride, and by the way, if you haven't listened to that message or you were here and you haven't listened to it again, go back and listen to it again. She said, you know, the bride is shackled by things that Jesus already set the bride free from. So the blood means something for your identity, but your experience is not, it, it, you're not realizing them. You're not realizing it all. And I think, guys, this all week long, I think there is a call. I almost see, like, on the top, the, the top of the mountains over here, like, like a trumpeter, like, I don't know, somebody calling out, like, pay attention, St. Hill. There's a call to higher things. There's a call to holiness. And it's not just for holiness' sake to say, wow, that's a holy church. No, it's holiness unto usefulness. There's a higher calling to holiness so that you can be effective in the identity that the blood of Christ has paid for. I believe that this will be a foundational season for all that St. Hill becomes. Uh, there, there's a, a pastor, I don't know if Ron Thomason is here, but there's this pastor in town named Ron. He planted a church a number of years ago, and, and now um, him and his wife come to, come to St. Hill and are retired pastors, essentially. But I met with him uh, a few months ago, and he said, wow, five years, that's, that's something. I was like, yeah, it really is. And he says, that's when you codify or you risk for more. That's when you say, yep, that was good. And everybody becomes comfy. And it becomes like a social club. And the tithing is stable. And he said, or that's when you, in the DNA of the church, in the foundation of the church, you say, no, there's more. There's more for you, St. Hill. There is a call to higher things, to being the real deal, to having authority in your identity and power in your life. And last week, what we experienced here last week, that was just the beginning. So I want to ask you this question. I think the text is going to answer it. How does it happen? How do you become something? How do you have authority, but you don't experience it as a believer in your life? How are you the bride of Christ, but you don't walk with any more privilege or any more power than anybody else? That's what this passage is about. And the first answer to that question is distraction. It's distraction. Look at where the focus of the disciples uh, is at. Look down at verse 46. It says this, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Remember, they just failed at casting out a demon. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child, made him stand before, beside him, and he said, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. Skip down to verse 49. Here's where there also are their other focuses. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Instead of asking, why do we have authority? You know, Jesus just gave us authority. Why do we have authority but we don't have any power? They turn to two topics, other people's ministries and which of them is the greatest in their failing ministry. You know, I'm really focused on those other people's ministry, even though we're failing. And I'm also very focused on who's the greatest in this failing ministry. 
it's like ancient stand-up. This is Luke, like, you know, and, and this is like the most churchy thing ever. It's like how many ministries out there are failing at reaching the lost, at transforming people's lives, and their biggest concern is with other people's ministries. Their biggest concern is, who's the best in this room? Here's the point. What you focus on completely influences what you can do. Something can be true about you, but you won't experience it if you live distracted. Let me say that again. Something can be true of you, but you will not experience it if you live distracted. Your focus on other people, your focus on comparison, how am I doing compared to them? Your focus on your own definitions of success for your life. You haven't asked God what, you, what is success in your life. You've just come up with your own. All of that removes focus from him and results in a lack of real power. Something's true of you that you're not experiencing in your life. In both cases, the case of the five, feeding the 5,000 and the case of the demonized boy, the disciples are being compared to Jesus who in both cases does something very different than them. In both cases, Jesus, we see him, he goes away, he meets with the Father, and he returns with power. He goes away, he prays, and he comes back with power. What is that? It's focus, it's consecration, it's I have one priority in my life, and then it's power. So it shouldn't be, you know, something could be true of you. You're a disciple. You're part of the bride of Christ. You are the righteousness of God. But if you live your whole life distracted, if you do not have priority in your life, if you do not have consecration in your life, you should not be curious as to why you don't live with power. Here's what Jesus is saying with his life. He's giving an example. When you aren't depending on God for daily strength, and instead you're concerned with who is who, when you're concerned with other people more than with the Father, you will be ineffective in the very places that you should be powerful. And you can feel the frustration of Jesus. I think this is probably, you know, this is probably one of the most intense moments of Jesus towards his disciple, disciples. He isn't like, it's okay, sweeties, I got this one. He isn't like, hey, good try. It's okay, you're just learning. He says, perverse, and unbelieving generation, how much longer do I have to stay here? <laughs> this is New Testament stuff. You know, it may seem harsh. It may even seem kind of overstated, like, dude, chill out. <laughs> they tried. But I'll say this, you know, as a dad, I can only be frustrated by things I know my daughter is capable of, but neglecting. So, <laughs> so if Jesus is upset, if he's annoyed, if Jesus is disappointed, it is because someone is living less than their identity, less than their ability. Someone has the power, they have the authority, and they are not using it because they're distracted I really think that distraction is one of the primary tools of the enemy to drain the church of power. 
all of the obvious ways that you're like, that's demonic, that's definitely against the church, that's from the enemy, that's not from God. Those are obvious. It's the subtle ways. It's the subtle distractions. It's the little compromises that slowly drain you of the power that Christ went to the cross to give you. And then it's the time of kingdom need, like this moment here, when what you've been soaking in, it's gonna get exposed. When your authority is needed, when you're called upon to be the hands, we're called the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. What will you have to give away then? You're gonna give away whatever you've been receiving. So whatever you've been soaking in, whatever you've been you know, getting away to do, whatever you've been distracted by, that is all that you will have to offer when the time of need comes. So distraction is super valuable to Satan. Super valuable. So I just wanna say this, and this is me preaching. Actually, I'm always preaching to myself up here. I'm preaching, I'm, I'm telling you, whenever I preach, I'm telling you what God has been speaking to me all week long. So there's no judgment. I'm, I'm in this. But I just wanna say this. The TV show isn't worth losing spiritually. The fear of man, I prayed with a number of people last week. The fear of man, the fear of man, comparison, comparison. The fear of man must be dumped. It's distraction. It needs to be repented of. God, I am sorry for thinking that other people's opinions will fill me and make me more alive than your opinion. I've put other people before you. I repent of that and I repent of my fear. I will fear you only. The distraction, I just want to say this, especially to those who have, you're in the builder stage of life. You're in your 30s, your 40s. The distraction of some financial future isn't worth losing spiritually apply the same way that you'd apply yourself to your financial future. Apply yourself spiritually. Your and especially, I really sense this, this is because we're in the election year. Your political interests aren't worth losing in the kingdom. If you, what is it, what is it profit a person to gain the world but lose your soul? Like you gave yourself to politics. You gave yourself to like who's in and who's out. You're doing the same thing that they're doing here. And it's, it's, it's neutering you. It is making you ineffective in kingdom, real kingdom work. Distraction, it leads to an ineffective bride because distraction leads to wrong belief. It leads to wrong belief. You end up believing incorrectly. The distraction, you think it's just, a, it's just like a little thing. It's actually discipling you. It's changing your beliefs. Turn to the left in your Bible to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, this is, um, there's two other times in, uh, one time in Mark and then one time in Matthew that this same story shows up. We're just gonna read the Mark one uh, because it has a little bit further insight as to what's going on with the disciples. So uh, Mark 9, and then let's see, where are we at? Mark 9, verse 14. Yeah, we're gonna read this whole thing. So, uh, let's start, let's actually start at 17, Mark 9, 17. So it says this, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not, pay attention to this, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. 
When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, verse 23, Jesus said, everything, and maybe let's just read this, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him, never enter him again. That's a good part of it. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many had said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Pay attention. He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This kind can come out only by prayer. Now, it's a little bit of a curious passage, and you obviously get a little bit more information, but let me just kind of summarize what's going on. He says, you're an unbelieving generation. This is the problem. This is why you couldn't do it. You're an unbelieving generation. Then he says to the, to the man, but you can imagine he's saying it to his disciples while he speaks to the man. He's like, they're going to hear this. All things are possible for those who believe. And then he ends with, this kind only comes out by prayer. We could spend a lot of time here, but let me just summarize. Jesus didn't pray for the boy. He commanded. You don't see Jesus pray for the boy here. He doesn't say, dear, dear Jesus, maybe God, praying to himself, dear Jesus, could you just please help this boy out? <laughs> he doesn't pray. He commands, get out. Don't come back. So it wasn't that the disciples failed to pray for the boy. It's like, oh, if you guys had prayed, it's that they didn't have trust. Okay, in, Greek, in the Greek, when Jesus speaks to the father, or uh, yeah, the father of the boy, he says this, all things, that word in Greek, all things means everything, everything. He says, all things are possible. In Greek, that word means come with power. All things come with power for those who believe. It's pistis in Greek, faith is how that's often translated, but it can be translated those who entrust. So, so here's what he's saying. Everything is possible or comes with power for those who entrust themselves to me, for those who entrust. See, the disciples, and this is why Jesus going away, getting with the Father, coming back with power is so important. The disciples hadn't developed intimacy with the Creator on their own to the degree that nothing was impossible. Their prayer lives were lacking they didn't spend time in communication with God. That's where trust is developed, in communication with God. Even if it's communication where you're like, I'm not really hearing anything back and I'm just frustrated right now. I'm just gonna tell you my frustration. You know what you're doing right there? You are developing trust. You are developing a trusting conversation. And they hadn't gained God minds as a result. Do you know what I mean? Like that's what's happening when you spend time with God is he's giving you his mind so that you think like him when you face whatever you're gonna face in this life so that you trust him. And that trust, that focus is where the power actually comes from. This kind only comes out through prayer. This kind only comes out through communion with the Father, through those who learn to entrust their lives to him. Saints Hill, 
We are going to be a church of authority with power because we trust. This is the year of dependence. We said this from the very beginning of the year. This is the year of dependence. This is the year where we say, I trust you. I'm gonna trust you. Turn one more time to Jeremiah um, in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, one of the great prophets. uh, And we're gonna be in chapter 17, Jeremiah 17. I told you I had a lot. Jeremiah 17. Uh, Last week, um, one of the gals from After the Rain, Victoria, she had a word for our church and she said, I really think that Jeremiah 17 verses seven through eight is for Saints Hill. And so I went back, I wrote that down and I went back this week and I read it. And it's a passage I've read many, many times, but you know, sometimes when you read a passage that maybe you've read a bunch of times and there's something new, there's something with life on it. And you're like, whoa, I don't, I, I've never seen that. That's so powerful. Well, I, I began to, to read Jeremiah 17, seven through eight, and I just began to meditate on it. And it, I actually got emotional because look at how intricate and how beautiful and just how true this is. Look down at your Bibles, verse seven says this, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. (laughs) The one who trusts God They have no worries when the environment around them doesn't foster them. The heat comes, no big. A year of drought is coming, that's okay. Why? Because it says that they, looked it back down at your Bibles, it says this in um, verse eight, they will be like a tree planted by the water, and this is the key part, that sends out its roots by the stream. Okay, when you trust God, what you're doing is you are, and you spend time with him, you commune, you are developing veins to strength. Secret underground hidden pathways, that's what a root is, to the presence of water. On the surface, they just look green. It's like, I don't know, man, they just have a really good attitude about life or they're just doing okay or I don't know. But underneath the surface, they have a whole life underground that has direct connection to the presence of water, direct connection to the presence of God. So that in the most unlikely times when their environment turns against them, they will still see their children prosper, their fear leave, and they will still see salvation come to their friends. They will bear fruit. They will have green leaves even in a year of drought. It's so good. Just meditate on that. We're about to, things are about to get crazy in our culture. It's about to get nuts. And we're going to see who has secret veins to the water. Now, you've probably heard that passage before. You've seen it printed on some sort of weathered wood in a hobby store. But there is a part of this passage that you have likely not heard. Maybe you've never even read it before or at least it's much less famous than this one, and it's what comes right before it. Verse five, this is what the Lord says. Oh, this is so scathing. 
Cursed is the one who trusts in man. Cursed. Who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. Do you see what's going on? It is a direct comparison. Cursed are you if you live as though man is the highest authority, that humans can solve every wrong. You're gonna live cursed if you believe that. The one who finds strength from people, we call that codependency, we call that idolatry, The one who gets strong only based on what people around them are saying or doing. The person who is only strong in their identity based upon how things are going around them. That person is like a dried out bush, like a snappable twig. They won't even see prosperity when it comes their way. This, guys, this passage is what Jesus is living in Luke chapter nine, and it's what he's warning about. You live with a focus on the Father. You create underground roots to the presence of God, secret things that nobody sees. You have that in your life and you will be effective. You're gonna bear fruit no matter what. You focus on other people. You focus on man. You draw strength from mere flesh and you will lose your power. I want you to see something. Uh, this this kind of came to me this week, and I think this is important. Power comes from authority. Authority comes from fearlessness. Fearlessness comes from confession of sin and surrender of plans. Surrender comes from trust, and trust comes from communion. We're going to spend a little bit of time here because this is important. Power, where does it come from? It comes from authority. This is, this, is, this is who I am in Christ. Authority, that comes, where does authority come from? It comes from living without fear. Think of Jesus in the storm. None of the disciples had authority over the storm because they were in fear. Jesus has an answer to the storm. He lives in authority and he is in peace, right? Fearlessness, where does it come, for the, come from for the believer? Fearlessness comes from confession of sin. Now you might think, Really? Is that really where fearlessness comes from? It doesn't come from like praying and breaking off fears. And Okay, it comes from confession of sin because what could have been used against you, you bring to God. You bear yourself before him so that you get his strength and his power where you have been weak. You have nothing to fear if you've exposed it before the Father. Nothing to fear. And that only that kind of surrender, that kind of that kind of moment with God only happens when you encounter Him and you grow in trust in times of communion, in times of prayer. This is why Jesus can say, Hey, that kind, it only comes out by prayer. Communication is the foundation of it all. I trust you when I see you. I confess when I trust you, where I'm weak and where you're strong. You give me strength, God, and I don't need to fear. So I live with authority and power as a result of my connection to you. Do you see this? Guys, I think there's a unique uh, focus of this season, like I've been saying. There's a unique focus of of this season. You know, the church calendar... It has all these moments, these high moments of like Epiphany and of uh, Christmas time and Advent and, and Pentecost. And then it has a long chunk of time that's just called ordinary time. 
just ordinary time. This is just, we're just living. And, and that is, you know, leading a church, that is how it is sometimes. There's just a long, long stretches of time where you're just like, yep, we're just doing what we heard you say to do like a year ago, and we're just going. And then there's moments where it feels like there's spiritual momentum, and you go, oop, something's going on. Something's going on in the spirit. What's going on? There seems to be spiritual momentum right now in our church, specifically for holiness. You know, last Sunday, I don't know how many people we saw come for prayer, but we saw a lot of people come for prayer. And each one of them had a hunger for righteousness. I'm not righteous, Lord. I'm not walking in righteousness. I'm living distracted. I'm living with the fear of man. I need to repent of this sin. And people, you guys, I'm so impressed. The people who we had come up from California, they're like, that was amazing. That's like the most vulnerable church we've ever been in. It's a safe place for people to confess their sin. It's so powerful. But you guys, you're hungry for real righteousness. You're hungry for real authority. And there seems to be this hunger for all that God has for us, not just some of what God has for our church, but we want all of it in our time. We only have so much time. We want all of it. So in this vision series, my vision is simple. You are the righteousness of God. You are the bride of Christ. So drop the chains and get rid of powerless thinking. Create veins to the presence. Spend time in communion. Hear who you are. Tell him what you're afraid of. Let him give you authority. Walk in power as a result. Here's what I want to say. Apply the blood of Christ all the way down. Don't let there be anything in you that the blood hasn't touched, that you don't see through the blood of Christ. When you look at it in your life, you say, that may be true, but I see it through the blood of Christ. And because of that, I'm being sanctified unto holiness and unto power. This is about integrity, about having authority in our identity and power as a result of the blood of Christ touching all parts of you. This psalm has been banging around my head for like, two months now, and I've been looking for a time to share it with you because it's so powerful. It says this, the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee, though no one is pursuing them. The righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee, though no one's pursuing them. When I first read this, I just wrote down in the little column in my Bible, I said, this is what lost authority feels like. This is what lost authority feels like. I used to be as bold as a lion, and now I'm constantly running away from things, reacting to things, though no one's even pursuing me. I think there are Christians who are the very righteousness of God who are living afraid without authority or power because they are allowing the enemy to tell them, don't take your sin to God. Don't apply the blood there. It won't work at that place. And God is moving us from fear into strength with his blood all the way down. What does that mean? What do I mean by that? Let me just describe it to you for a moment. Here's what what applying my blood all the way down means. It means for my fears. My fears about physical, relational, emotional, civic, and reputational harm are all owned. Yep, I'm afraid of it. They're confessed to God, and then they are replaced with truth, hope of resurrection, and an eternal mindset. I gotta apply the blood all the way down. So over my fears, God, here's what I'm afraid of reputationally. Here's what I'm afraid of financially. Here's what, what I'm afraid of relationally. I need your blood to touch this. So here, here they are. Would you touch even right here? My thinking about ambition, about people's value, 
about what matters most in life, about money and purpose, are all seen through Christ's blood. Next slide. My heart's delights. These are all parts of us, guys. My heart's delights, my hopes, my dreams, my plans, my intentions are all submitted to God's plan and his purposes and a cross-shaped vision of kingdom life. The blood has to touch all of it, even my future, what I'm hoping to do. It's fine if you have a, if you have a hope, but you have to have the blood of Christ over it. You have to have his vision over it so that you go, yep, even right there, I wanna think about that the way that you want me to think about it. I wanna hope about that the way that you want me to hope about it. God, do you want me to hope about this or is this something that I need to just release to you? There are a number of things in my life over the past year that I have had deep hopes about and the Lord has not said, yep, someday, son. He's just said, nope, you need to give that one to me. I want the blood of Christ. I don't want anything, no distraction. So that I, I don't make choices out of fear or reaction. See, if you're living, if you are holding on to your fears, you're holding on to your hopes, your dreams, all that, you know what you're doing? You're constantly gonna make decisions out of fear. Well, I don't want that to happen, so I should do this, or I do want that to happen, so I should, I should probably do this. You're not going to him. But if you bring it to him, you won't make choices out of fear or reaction. You actually value what God values the way that he values it. And I'm single-minded in my pursuits in this life, and I live with authority and with power as a result. Imagine a church that's unafraid walking in the light. Powerful and effective. So to end, a practical exhortation. Confess your sin. Confess it. Just get it in the open, you know. When we debriefed last Sunday and uh, just what, what took place, um, our, some of our prayer team members and our, the crew from California, they said, you know, it was amazing what people confessed. It wasn't these huge sins. They were, it was the smallness of the sin that was so impressive. It was the detail. And it made me think, you know, it's almost like every church has an unspoken agreement in it of how much less than the kingdom that they will live in by what they tolerate. It's almost like every church that I've ever been to has had this unspoken agreement. We'll live in 70% of what God has for us because we want to tolerate this over here. Maybe even we'll live in 90% of what God has for us because we just are going to continue to tolerate this 10% over here. But you all, you said, last week you said nothing. Nothing's too small to confess. A little leaven leavens the whole batch. So confess it and don't stop. Bring it into the light. Because look what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but this is so crazy. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Forgiveness has not had its full effect in your life until that place of weakness becomes a weapon for God. That's what that is saying. That when you expose it, when you say, yep, even here, I'm believing this. Or I'm thinking about people this way. Or I'm holding on to this hope with a tight grip and I won't give it to you, Lord. When you confess even that, it becomes a light. Don't protect yourself from the only one who can heal you by hiding or denying sin. This is one of the biggest lessons I've learned in the past, like over the summer, is that you have to own it before you can disown it. Like in our church, we're like, we're the righteousness of God. I have nothing. I'm I'm the righteousness of God. There's nothing to confess. Taken the wrong way, 
you are saying, I'm the righteousness of God, so that means that I don't have any sin in my life at all. When in reality, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, do not submit yourself to a yoke of slavery again. In other words, you can. So bring it into the light. Own it. Say, yep, that's where I'm at, and I want to disown it now because of the cross. I want to testify to the power of the blood on exposed sin. Since I was uh, 10 years old, I've dealt with, um, yeah, basic, for, for a number of years, it was addiction. But addiction to pornography and sexual sin from the time I was 10. And uh, it, it was really, really tough for a long time, especially, you know, it was really tough because I wanted to be in ministry. I felt like God had purposes on my life to, to actually be in the church. And it was this, this thing always nagging and disqualifying and speaking to me from, it, for, you know, the enemy. Anytime you sin, you, he has a foothold to then accuse you of something that's not true, but you can, believe, you can hear it and you can believe it. And so I constantly was just battling, battling, battling. And times were better than others. And I, I, as I matured, I began to put more safeguards in my life. There's just really practical things that you can do. In November, I start counseling. And part of the first thing that we do in it is, is Teresa, who was here last week. She says, I want you to tell me everything bad that you've ever done and be, and be specific. I'm like, I don't really want to do that. I'd actually rather you just respect me as a fellow worker in the gospel. And uh, <laughs> So anyways, I made a confession, and I, I told her, I said, here's all the stuff that I've done. And some of it is so ugly, I literally can't tell you. I don't just go around blasting it. It's so ugly. So I tell her, I make a confession. I have experienced such authority and power in the place of sexuality in my life like I've never experienced before. I mean, I'm not saying it's just, oh, not a struggle. I'm never tempted. No, I am. Its grip, it is like, it is like hanging on. It has lost its grip on me. Through repetitive confession of sin, bringing it into the light, everything that is exposed becomes a light. I'm not a story of like, I got touched by God in a moment of intense prayer, and I never dealt with it again. I, look, I have a buddy of mine. That's his story. It's, it wasn't my story. Mine has been confession and repentance again and again and again and again until my mind, will, and emotions come into alignment with God's word about my design. So I just want to say it can happen to you. It can happen to you. We're going to have our prayer team. In fact, if, wherever our prayer team is at, if you wouldn't mind coming down to the front, we're going to start moving prayer into our gathering time. So we're going to have prayer right here. If you're on the worship team, come on up as well. Um, come and confess your sin. Come and get free. Come and illuminate what's going on, and God will make you powerful, powerful. Some of you should go to counseling. I think we have a slide uh, for um, after the rain counseling. Uh, if we could just throw that up there real fast, that'd be great. Look, all of our current beliefs that we believe, the things that actually lead us into uh, lies, they lead us into being ineffective. They have a moment in our history where they originated, and we need Jesus to apply his blood at those points as well, so that we can believe the truth, not just think about the truth. We don't want to just think about the truth. We want to believe it by having an encounter with God. So after the rain, Christian counseling is not about processing trauma or negative emotions or behaviors. It is targeted transformation. Without an encounter with the glory of God, our wounds remain open and unhealed. But when we encounter God in his word or through prayer, he transforms our pain and uses it as a weapon against the enemy. After the rain offers 16 session counseling slash discipleship programs that are designed to expose lies, confront idols, and empower you to live as the child of the king that you are. So I would encourage you, if this resonates at all with you, sign up. Let's all stand together, by the way. 
Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.